0: Well, as we start this morning, I wanna share about another uh, thing that has come to my attention through uh, reading a book, Gospel-Centered Kids Ministry, Uh, something else that is all hands on deck. So the book starts with this illustration of Apollo 13. You guys all know what Apollo 13 is, was? Okay, it was uh, the third ever manned mission that was supposed to land on the moon. And uh, you get the famous quote, Houston, we have a problem, right? But two days into their journey, an oxygen tank exploded, right? And the mission became to keep these three guys alive and to bring them back home safely. Everyone in mission command in Houston, all they were thinking about is how can we return these men safely? The the commander-in-chief of NASA said, we've not lost a man in space. Failure is not an option. Lives depended on everyone working together, all people in that space command center doing what they needed to do to see these men brought home. Well, how about our mission as believers? All right, did you know that it is the mission of every believer to share the gospel and to make disciples? And God gets glory from doing that. In fact, that is our mission statement of this church, that we would glorify God by fulfilling the great commission and the spirit of the great commandment, that we would share the gospel, that we would train people up and that God would be glorified in that. Right, our mission cannot fail either. Lives depend on it. People need to come to know Christ. But here's the question that has been really convicting for me this week? What am I doing about that? Am I taking this all-hands-on-deck mindset? Am I doing my part to bring people into a saving relationship with Christ? Uh, A question that was really convicting for me was, who is the last person, the name that comes to my mind that I had a part in bringing to the Lord? As you think on that, maybe you can say, oh, I got someone in mind right away. Maybe you can say, man, I've, I've never had an opportunity to do that. I've never led anyone to the Lord. Regardless where you're at on the spectrum, today what we're going to unpack at 1 Corinthians 9 is going to show us how we can and we should be a part of a mission that can't fail, winning others to Christ. And so this is going to be convicting. It's going to be challenging. It's been challenging for me this week. So I want to pray for us, just pray for clarity as we unpack God's word, clarity for um, me as I Preach to you, and also for humility, right, as we're challenged, as we're convicted, that we would be willing to respond to God as he leads us. So would you please join me in prayer? God, we love you. We thank you so much for your presence here this morning. We thank you for the opportunity that you give us to be a part of your mission, God, to be a part of winning people to Christ, a part of seeking and saving those who are lost. God, I pray that you would be with us now as we open up your word, as we seek to God, just be challenged, convicted to to glean some things of how we can live in a way that glorifies you more. God, would you help your word to do what it needs to do in our lives today? We love you, God. We pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. All right, so go ahead and turn your Bibles to 1 Corinthians chapter nine. If you do not have your Bibles, with you this morning. That's all right, we got you covered. The ushers are coming forward. They would love to get a Bible in your hand. So raise your hand up and they will gladly give you one to follow along this morning. And as you are turning there, let's get a little reminder of the context that we're in. Right, The Corinthians here are struggling a little bit with thinking that they are all that and a bag of chips. Right, Nick talked about last week that they are puffed up with knowledge. They are feeling good about themselves and they are boasting in their knowledge of rights and in knowledge of their freedoms. As Nick mentioned, chapters 8 through 10 is all addressing this idea of rights and freedoms. Specifically, Paul's getting at the fact that they are asking the wrong question. The Corinthian church is asking the wrong question. They're saying, how many freedoms can I have? How many things can I still hang on to, worldly things, but I'm not going to be in sin? But Paul's saying that's not the question. The question is, how many freedoms can I lay down? How many things can I give up and not be in sin that I can reach the world? He's asking them to reconsider their mindset. And the conclusion of this section happens at the very end of chapter 10, verses 31 through 11, verse 1. And just kind of a quick read of what that says. It says, So whether you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or Greeks or the church of God, Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that many that they may be saved, be imitators of me as I am of Christ. right, this summary is very similar to what we see in Corinthians 9 verse 19 in our passage today where Paul says this, he says, for though I am free from all, I've made myself a servant to all. Why does he do that? That I might win more of them. That's all that he wants to do. He wants to win more people to Christ. And he wants to do this because he's imitating Jesus. Jesus said in Luke 19, verse 10, that his mission, as he's talking about himself, is that the Son of Man came to seek and save the lost. That was Jesus' primary purpose. He came to this earth to seek those who are lost and to grant them salvation. That's what Paul is trying to imitate. That is what he is exhorting the Corinthians to do. He's not trying to rip away freedoms. He's not trying to beat them down unnecessarily. He's trying to help them get this idea that it would be to God's glory and their benefit if they would lay down their freedoms to win people to Christ. So as we unpack today the the mission of the Messiah, the mission of man, the mission of saving souls, we are gonna look at three keys to winning people to Christ. Three things in this, three chapters that are centered around freedom, specifically uh, this issue of food sacrifice to idol. Paul in chapter 9 is going to show what his personal practice is. He's going to say, this is the plan that I have. This is the practice that I live out. And this is the preparation that I use to winning people to Christ. So first, his plan is to have a gospel-centered mindset. And that's the challenge for us today as well, that we would have a gospel-centered mindset in all that we do. So I want you to follow along with me as I read in our text. We're gonna cover verses one through 14 of 1 Corinthians nine. So please follow as I read. It says in verse one, "'Am I not free? "'Am I not an apostle? "'Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? "'Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? "'If to others I am not an apostle, "'at least I am to you, "'for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord.'" This is my defense to those who would examine me. Do you, have, do you not have the right to eat and drink? Do we not have the right to take along a believing life, as do the other apostles and brothers of our Lord and Cephas? Or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Who plants a vineyard without eating any of its fruit? Or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? Do I say these things on human authority? Does not the law say the same? For it is written in the law of Moses, you shall not muzzle an ox when it comes to tread out the grain. Is it for the oxen that God is concerned? Does he not certainly speak for our sake? It was written for our sake, because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do we not even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. So again, what what Paul is doing here, right? He is helping the Corinthians understand how to use their rights and freedoms, Now, the Corinthians, they didn't like that very much, right? They pushed back on that. I don't know uh, if there's anyone in this room that likes to push back on authority. Maybe it's just teenagers and my two-year-old daughter, right? But I would guess a lot of us struggle when people tell us this is how you should live, right? We don't like people doing that. The Corinthians certainly did not. And so they push back. They say, we're not listening to you. You're not the boss of me. They question his authority and question his apostleship in Christ. But also on top of that, we remember back in Acts chapter 18 that Paul worked as a tent maker while he was in the city of Corinth. He wasn't receiving payment for his work in ministry. So not only do they not listen to him because he hurt their feelings, but also they're like, he's not even good enough to make money off of what he's doing. Right? In those days, traveling preachers and teachers and philosophers would make their money four different ways. One, they could charge money. They would receive payment for what they did. Two, they would get patronage or people would give to support them in their journeys, in their teachings. Third, they would beg, right? They would beg to get what they needed to survive. And fourth, and the least highly seen of the ways that they earned money was to work a different job. So they're saying, if this guy can't even support himself by sharing the gospel, is he worth listening to? Well, uh, Paul does state, yes, I am. And in fact, uh, do you remember the fact that I planted your church Is that not evidence that I know what I'm doing? I am an apostle. I have been given authority. But on top of that, he then goes to assert what his rights are. He then goes to explain, I have been given these rights. And later we'll see what he has chosen to do with those rights. But he says, in the context here, here personally is what I am doing. In chapter 8, verse 13, he turns it from Corinthians. Here's how you should handle this deal of food offered to idols. And he says, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. He turns it to himself. And chapter nine is he is going to explain to them his plan, his practice, and his procedure. But again, first he does that by recognizing what his rights are, affirming what his freedoms are. And so if we're gonna have a gospel-centered mindset, we need to do that too, right? We need to understand what our rights are in the gospel. So right off the bat, Paul gives us two questions. Two questions. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Right? These are the two objections that have been given to them wanting to listen to him. Right? He's not even free to go and work ministry for a living. He has to work his secular job. And then two, he's not an apostle. They reject his authority. So Paul answers those uh, very quickly. All right, first, uh, we see that there's these rhetorical questions. Have I not seen Jesus? Am I not? Are you not my workmanship in the Lord? Uh, all of these rhetorical questions, which there's a lot in these first 14 verses, right? Uh, the Greek to the English doesn't translate that these are not given an option, but to answer in the affirmative. As in, these questions are making a statement. Yes, I've seen Christ. Yes, you are my workmanship. Right? This hits the two biblical criteria for being an apostle, which is to, one, have seen Jesus in person. Did, did Paul see Jesus in person? right? In Acts 9, on the road to Damascus, he encountered Christ. And then two is to be commissioned by Jesus, which he was. Again, he was to go to the Gentiles. We read of that in Galatians 1, 16. And the Corinthians, they are Gentiles, right? They're away from Jerusalem. They're Gentiles who are evidence, the seal of his apostleship. So then in verses 3 through 14, he turns to his rights or his freedoms. Specifically, he has the freedom to have food, right? Sustenance, survival. Uh, there is the freedom that he can be a minister and marry. And then he turns to this talk about earning money for his work in ministry. Now, verse six is a little bit of some tricky wording, but basically, it's to say that uh, Barnabas and Paul also are able to get a living from work in ministry. They are. He goes then to list five reasons why he can make money from his work, why gospel ministry is a way to make a living. First in verse seven, he kind of expresses this idea of common sense. It says, uh, doesn't the soldier serve at his own expense? No, people pay for him. Those who plant a vineyard, they receive the fruit. Those who tend the flock, they receive some milk. So a common sense is that you will gain something from your work. Then in verses eight through 10, the second reason is that it is God's design He references the Old Testament, Deuteronomy 25 verse 4, which a side note that shows the Old Testament is still applicable to us today, right? We can still use it in our lives. It's God's design that we would earn for our work in ministry. Then verse 11 through 12a, he says, well, guess what? Uh, Other people in Corinth have earned money for their work in ministry. You already are doing this. You already are paying others. So how much more the guy who planted your church? then in 12b, he gives us kind of a sneak peek of his practice, right? He says, nevertheless, we're not using these rites. The reason that I'm not doing it is I don't want an obstacle in the gospel. We're gonna come back to that. But then in verse 13, he asserts a fourth reason, which is, guess what? It's not just for the apostles. We see this as a standard in our culture, both in the Jewish synagogues and in the pagan temples. They are paid, they earn their living for the work that they do in ministry there. That's a justifiable means, and then in verse 14, finally, he says, Jesus commanded it, the Lord commanded it. You can read in Luke 10 and in Matthew 10, when Jesus sends out the 72, he says, get what you need from those you are ministering to. Don't take anything with you, let that be your provision. Right? The conclusion in verse 14 then is that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. They should be able to make a living from their ministry. And again, we can unpack this more. People use this text to talk about why it's good to pay pastors, pay those in ministries, and that is a a good and a right application. But as we're looking at the whole of chapter 9, Paul is essentially asserting these rights to affirm that he has them so that he can do what he does next, which is to say, I have them to lay down for the sake of the gospel. Which that is the second key to having a gospel-centered mindset, is that we need to be willing to lay down our rights and our freedoms for the gospel. Now, it's kind of a unique strategy, right? He lays out 14 verses of reasons why I can get paid. And then in verse 15, it says this, But I've made no use of any of these, nor am I even trying to secure any such provision. Right? So why does he do that? Well, let's keep reading verse 15 through 18. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I did this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge, so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel." So verse 15, right? I don't want to use my rights. Verse 16 and 17, he kind of gives an explanation of an explanation of an explanation. But ultimately, they get back to the point of verse 18, that his reward is to present the gospel free of charge. Paul is choosing the right of payment to lay down, to not present an obstacle to his ministry. His payment, if you will, is to not be paid. He is serving freely, to freely offer the free gospel. Now again, this is Paul's personal conviction. This is the right that he has chosen to lay down. Right? Verse 16 and 17 also talk about that he has a unique calling. He has been commissioned to share that gospel. That is part of what God has called him to do. Yet even if he had not been given that special commission, right, he has to do that because of what he's been asked to by the Lord. But even if that wasn't the case, He has been given a stewardship, the same stewardship that we have all been given. We have been given a responsibility to the Lord, which also comes with accountability. And that responsibility is to share the good news of the gospel. But here's the key. The the mindset that he has is he wants nothing in the way of the gospel message. He uses the word gospel four times in as many verses. And as verse 12b says, he would rather have no obstacle in the way. He recognizes that he has rights, but he wants to lay those rights down. And now look at verse 18, right? It says just that I may present the gospel, not that I know people are getting saved, but just that I have the opportunity to share the good news to them. Right? His mindset isn't even they have to be saved, although that is what he wants. His mindset is I just have to share this good news. I just want to present it to them. Is that our mindset? And I don't want to over-spiritualize the decisions in our life, but are we praying, are we thinking about, is this thing that I'm going to do, is this relationship that I'm in, is this activity that I'm involved with going to advance the gospel? Is it going to help me win people to Christ? I was challenged a few weeks back. We went to the Ignite Youth Conference here in Des Moines back in March, and one of the speakers started talking about uh, this question. He says, "Why why do you go to middle school? Well, besides the fact that you have to, you do it so you can get to high school. Well, why do you go to high school? Well, so I can go to college. Well, why do you go to college? Well, so I can get a job, so I can make money, so hopefully I can get a spouse who's really good looking, and then we can have kids, and they'll take care of us, and then we'll retire on the beach, and we'll have a good time there, right? Guys, that's sad, right? Why do we go to middle school? It's to be on mission for God, to make disciples, Why do I go to high school? So I can share the gospel. Why do I work the job that I work? So I have an opportunity to present the gospel. Every decision that we make, do I take this job or not? Do I homeschool, public school, Christian school? Why am I making this decision if it's not giving me an audience for the gospel? Man, maybe we need to start changing our mindset. And I'm not talking about what your personal conviction is. I'm just saying we need to start thinking that way. We need to start thinking that we are missionaries. We are to be imitators of Christ. His whole purpose in life was to seek and save the lost. Am I thinking that that's my purpose? Are you thinking that that is your purpose? All right, let's let's be honest in church, right? Raise your hand if you would love to see Harvest Bible Chapel grow in number, right? I think all of us would agree we want to see our church grow. That's a good thing. Now, here's another question. How many people in the city of Grimes do you think are at church this morning? Let's just throw out a number, 2,000 people at church this morning. at Bible-believing, gospel-centered churches. How about in the Des Moines metro? Or maybe, again, we'll just guess. I have no idea. I didn't do research on this. Like 200,000 people. Are we okay with seeing our church grow in number without seeing the total number of people attending church in our city grow? Without the total number of people in the metro grow? A lot of times I think we're okay with church growth by relocation we're not willing to do the work of church growth by salvation. We're not willing to be a part of the mission to go and engage the world around us that they may come to know Christ. We don't have that gospel-centered mindset of, yes, we want church growth, and I know all of us here want to see more people added to the kingdom, right? You wouldn't be at this church if you didn't want to see souls saved. But then the question is, is my mindset turning into action? Am I having those conversations? Am I engaging people in a way that they will come to know Christ? And I admit, I am the worst at this. I am the worst at having that mindset. This has been challenging for me this week to think about, man, when is the last time that I led someone to the Lord? When was the last time I was even intentional about thinking of a decision in a way that I would lead someone to Christ? Our mindset needs to change. Now let's keep reading, verses 19 through 23. Paul kind of shifts from his mindset to now what he, he does about it. We know he wants to share the gospel, but how is he doing it? Well, verse 19 says, for though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews, I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people that by all means I might save some. I do it all for the sake of the gospel that I may share with them in its blessings. Paul says, I become all things to all people that I might save some. I engage the world around me that they may hear the gospel and that they may be one with Christ. That's what we need to do too. We need to engage the world around us If we want to win people to Christ, we have to engage those who are around us. I've been reading this book, it's called Gaining by Losing by Pastor J.D. Greer, and he uh, tells this story that I think illustrates this really well. He compares uh, two Union Army generals from the Civil War, George McClellan and Ulysses S. Grant. He says McClellan was a really, really smart guy, like a, a brilliant guy. He went to West Point at 15, he graduated second in his class. He would have been first, but evidently he was bad at drawing maps, so you know, he. Got second in his class. Is still pretty good, and uh, he was a great recruiter and organizer. the The troop that he oversaw grew from thirty thousand to one hundred thirty thousand in six months, and became more organized than they were before with less people. He was brilliant. He had the plan down. But yet, when he had a strategic advantage, an opportunity to engage his enemy, he froze. He he never attacked. He was so brilliant. He knew the plan, but then he forgot the mission is to win this war. We need to go and fight this battle. He never engaged the enemy. And so Abraham Lincoln replaced him with Grant, who evidently wasn't quite as brilliant. Uh, Obviously, he was qualified for the job. And uh, as J.D. Greer puts it in his book, uh, he says that he was willing to pick a fight with a beehive with his shirt off, right? He was ready to go into battle. He was not hesitant. He was ready to engage. He knew the mission was to win the war. Not just train up, not just strategize, not just prepare, but but to do it. We do this as believers sometimes, though. We want to be built up in the knowledge of Christ. We want to be sanctified. We want to be removed of the sin in our lives, but then we say, well, I'm going to do it to stay away from the world. I don't want to engage in the world. No, we are are set apart to be sent. We are relieved from sin so that we can go to those who don't know Christ. In fact, Jesus prayed for that in John 17 when he says, Father, I don't ask that you take them from the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. I want them to refrain from evil so they can go evangelize. I don't wanna take them out of here. They need to be here to be on mission, to seek and to save those who are lost. That's what Paul does in verse 19. He says, emphatically, he answers the question, are you free? He says, yes, I am free, but in my freedom, I am using it that I may become a servant to all. All Just as Jesus came not to be served, but to serve that he may give his life as a ransom. Paul is imitating that and he is exhorting the Corinthians to lay down their freedoms that some may be one to Christ. And we see that there are three specific groups that he talks about engaging here in verses 20 through 22. First, we see that he became as a Jew to the Jews. Right? What this is saying is that he became all things to all cultures, to those of other cultures. Now Paul was Jewish, right? So this is an interesting argument as he was a Jew, What he is saying is, I have put away some of the practices of my culture. I've done that for the sake of Christ. Remember, we're talking about food sacrifice to idols. He's willing to engage in some cultural norms of other places so that he might reach them. That's also true of wanting to add on cultural norms. As he, in Acts 21, goes back to Jerusalem. And there's some guys there who are upset, saying, man, you love the Gentiles too much. We can't listen to you because you don't. Enjoy your own people, and he says, "No, that's not true." Right? And he pays money so guys can have their head shaved to fulfill their Nazarite vow, and he himself goes through the purification. He's willing to become all things to those of different cultures. For those of us today, this may look like engaging someone from a different country, maybe someone from a different city in our state. Right? There's very different cultures of people from different places in our even state of Iowa. Subcultures, maybe the difference between an accountant and a construction worker and a doctor. An athlete and a non-athlete? Or how about various age groups, right? Kids to students to middle age to elderly. We all have a little different culture. But are we willing to become all things to all people to win them to Christ? Now he then goes into those who are of other religions. First, those specifically who are under the law, those who are Jewish. Again, this is distinct from just those who are culturally Jew. He's saying those who are practicing the religion of Judaism. He said, when I'm with them, I will eat kosher, right? He wants to be under the law with them so that he may win some. And then he goes into a little play on words here. He's talking about I'm not under the law. He's not saying I'm lawless. I'm not being free to do sinful things. But he's saying I'm free from practicing these lawful traditions so that I can reach those with the religion of non-religion or those of pagan religions. Again, we're talking about food to idols. He is doing this with an opportunity to win those who are outside the law. We have this too. We have people in our metro who are of different religions, people probably in your workplace or in your school who do not know Christ, who are practicing the religion of non-religion. Are we willing to engage them? And then finally, in verse 22, he says, to the weak, I became weak. The word here is is a mental understanding of weakness, more or less an issue of maturity. So whether that's age, someone who is more or less mature in age, or someone who is spiritually more or less mature, he's saying, I spoke in a way that was intellectually capable for them of understanding so that I may reach them. And then verse 22b, right? I became all things to all people that by all means I might win some. All right, this is interesting. We know that God brings salvation, we know that God gives the gifts of faith and repentance for us to believe. But Paul is saying, hey, we have an opportunity to be a part of that. We have an opportunity to win some people to Christ. But we need to be willing to engage the world around us that we may have that opportunity. Now, there are two, two cautions here that I want to lay out. First, we can't lose our distinctiveness as individuals. Don't lose your distinctiveness as an individual. Paul, even though he was behaving slightly differently, he didn't change who he was. He was still Paul. He was still the unique man that God had created him to be. I honestly struggle with this. I struggle with whether I'm in Harvest Kids or I'm at Harvest Students or I'm up here. Am I changing who I am or am I speaking in a way that is just trying to engage those who are around me. Don't change who you are as an individual. Don't lose that distinctiveness. Yet at the same time, think about am I willing to become all things to all people? Secondly, we can't lose our distinctiveness as Christians. Right, Paul didn't say to the thief I became a thief. He didn't say to the adulterer I became sexually immoral. No, he didn't say that. Right, we only engage in ways that don't compromise our conscience, When we do that, we are in sin, is what Scripture tells us, and we don't do anything that would contradict the commands of God. Don't do anything that would compromise your conscience or contradict the commands of God. That would be losing your distinctiveness as a Christian. That would not be helping you engage the world around you. So some questions to ask, right? How can we avoid this? Well, first ask, is this sinful? Does God forbid it? If he does, I shouldn't become this thing I shouldn't be all things when it comes to sin in order to engage those around me. Second, and we talked about this in depth last week, is it causing others to sin? Is my weaker brother or sister in Christ sinning because of what I am doing? That would be wrong for us to then pursue. And then finally, most I think we can resonate with is, does this actually give me a chance to share the gospel? Am I becoming all things to this person just so we can be buddies, just so we can hang out? Or am I actually going to keep my mindset of sharing the gospel? Again, this comes back to why are we in relationships that we are? Why do we work the job that we do? Why do we go to the school that we go to? Why do we participate in the activities that we do? Are we actually gaining an audience with people? Again, we have some opportunities that we can do this, where we can become all things to all people or one of them is coming up in June. High five. You may not think that you are gonna be very skilled or amazing to work with kids, but it's an opportunity to become all things to all people. As Mason said that, we may see people come and give their life to Christ. We had six children give their lives to the Lord here last year. We would love to see that, and that is an opportunity for us to be engaged in the mission. Or maybe that's serving regularly in our kids or our student ministries. We are in need of more servants who are willing to communicate the gospel to the next generation. How about reaching our neighbors or our co-workers? We have two really, really unique opportunities in the next two weekends. Next weekend is Memorial Day. We have an opportunity within a cultural norm to invite people over, to have a party, to engage the world around us in a way that is non-threatening. Now, let's get together as a church family. Let's have fun. Let's Though use our compelling community to witness, invite your unsaved coworkers and your friends to your Memorial Day gatherings. Then, coming up, the end of the month, May 31st, we have our next Harvest Hangout. All right, what a great way to engage your culture by inviting those who you know who don't know Christ to watch a movie and eat some popcorn. Right? That's non-threatening. They would love to do that. That's kid-friendly. That's a way to engage the world around you. We have been given a mission. It's critical. It cannot fail. Are we willing to engage the world around us? Let's look for those opportunities. Let's turn to the final four verses here, verses 24 through 27. Read with me. Do you know, do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize? So run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others I should be disqualified. Here's the final thing, the final key to winning others to Christ is that we need to discipline ourselves with eternity in mind. Discipline yourself with eternity in mind. So what Paul does here is he really provides an illustration of his preparation, how he prepares. To share the gospel. And what he's referring to is what was uh, in the ancient world, the Isthmian Games. So there was the Olympics that was already happening. This was like uh, the world championships, like the number two thing. It was all countries, people from around the Mediterranean. They had to come and qualify for 10 months of training, of rigorous physical discipline. Then, after they passed that, they would have another trial period before they finally got to compete in the Games. And then from there, they're competing for a prize. Now, Paul says here, All runners run. Now, it's not that the prize isn't important, but what he is focused on here is the way that we obtain that prize, the running. Paul says that we need to be running in a way that is fueled by our future, that our discipline is fueled by our future victory over sin and death, fueled by our eternal reward in heaven. And this one prize isn't to say that one person is going to be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that there is one end goal that we are all running for. We are all running for eternity in heaven with Christ. And to obtain it, it takes some discipline. It takes some self-control as we pursue the Lord. Now, verse 26, he gives us two illustrations here, both that point to the practice of self-control. And He speaks to this idea that it's not self-control just for the sake of self-control. It's not discipline without purpose. You guys have maybe heard the quote, discipline without purpose is drudgery. That's not what we want. And he gives two examples to illustrate that, right? Don't run aimlessly and don't box as one beating the air. Are you guys familiar with Forrest Gump, right? There's a scene in the movie where he just kind of takes off and he runs for three years. And he says, (laughs) I just felt like running, right? He just wanted to run. He just wanted to go and run. What What is the purpose of that? Uh, Rocky, my guy Rocky, okay? He's uh, a big deal in my family growing up. Uh, We can talk about that another time. But uh, it would be silly of him to step into the ring with Ivan Drago or Apollo Creed or Mr. T and start swinging that air, right? Not trying to hit nothing. That's not going to help him win, right? He needs to swing to connect. He needs to swing with the end goal in mind, the victory in mind. Paul says we don't exercise self-control aimlessly. There is a purpose. That purpose is eternity. Us, Glorifying God by living a life of holiness and others coming to know Christ and getting to experience him in eternity. Right? The eternity in mind is both ours and that of others. That is why we discipline ourselves. Right? We need to practice our spiritual disciplines. We need to get together with other believers. We need to do the things that God has laid out in his word as disciplines with the mindset of eternity. I love working out, I love going on runs and swimming and lifting weights, but I'll be honest, I do not stay very disciplined until I've signed up for a triathlon or a run, right? If I have an end goal in mind, then I know, okay, something's coming, I I need to get prepared for it. Otherwise, it's hard to stay as disciplined. Well, in the same way, it's hard for us to practice the spiritual disciplines without the end in mind. It's hard to have that same motivation. Let me ask you this. If your end goal in reading your Bible was so that you could share the gospel with somebody, would that change your motivation? Would that change your preparation? How about church attendance or small group? And I, I don't want to be legalistic in this, but do you recognize that being here on Sunday, being at your small group midweek, being at monthly church ride prayer is a part of having an eternal mindset? Right? You are never more reminded about eternity than, with your, than when you are with other believers. They help you be accountable to the disciplines God has called you to. Right? you don't just say, man, I don't feel good. I'm not gonna be there today. Right? A couple weeks ago, a brother in our small group called and said, hey, I am not gonna make it. I'm sick, but I wanna call into accountability. I know this is important. I wanna be there. Or right? you don't just say, oh, it's nice outside, man. I'm gonna go enjoy the nice weather. Or, oh, it's volleyball or basketball season, so I'll see you when that's done. Guys, I got so mad at my parents growing up because we would miss tournaments to go to church. Now, we skip some Sundays. I'm not going to say every time that there was a game we missed. I think my parents had a healthy balance in that, but more often than not, they said, you know what's more important? Your holiness and winning people to Christ, not this basketball game, not this baseball game. My parents painted a great picture of showing me that eternity was more important than the temporal. And again, that is something that we have an opportunity to disciple our children about, the next generation about. Being together with other believers, practicing the spiritual disciplines, those things are crucial to disciplining ourselves so that people may come to know Christ. Think about this. Why do athletes sacrifice? Why do they not live normal lives? They do it to obtain something perishable. Right, I've been reading this book, Disciplines of a God, the Young Man, with one of our high school students, in it shares some examples here of people in this life who do things to earn a perishable price, people who we look up to and say, whoa, they're really cool. I want to be like them, right? And we should, and that's great, and God has given them gifts and talents, but let me give you a list here. Michael Phelps, right? When he was on his tear, when he won whatever it was, 1,000 gold medals in one Olympic Games, he had spent six days a week swimming 10 hours a day in the pool for four years, Mike Singletary, a Super Bowl-winning linebacker, would watch a single play 50 times over on film so that he would be ready to react in the moment. He would know what would happen. Mozart, by the time he was six years old, had spent three or 3,500 hours on his piano. Michelangelo, we see the Statue of David, but we forget there was tens of thousands of sculptures that he worked on before that one. Thomas Edison had a thousand tries before we had the light bulb that worked. WD40 stands for water displacement 40th try, right? It took 40 attempts. All of these things take time and work. And again, God has given those people unique giftings and talents, but they are sacrificing a normal life to receive an imperishable prize. Re-sacrifice, sorry, they sacrifice a normal life to pursue a perishable prize but we sacrifice the imperishable prize to pursue a normal life. Because that's not having an eternal mindset. That's not being disciplined with eternity in mind. We should be willing to live a not normal life, something that looks different from the world, so that we can be what God has called us to be and someone who seeks and saves the lost. Now, Paul is not just saying these things because he wants to beat down the Corinthians. He doesn't just want to make them upset even more so, but he wants them to to change their behavior and he gives them a call to action. Verse 27, he says kind of this warning, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Now, he's not talking here about losing salvation, right? That's not what he is saying. But he is saying, I will lose my effectiveness for the sake of the gospel. I will not be an effective minister for Christ. And again, as he says, I discipline myself, he is literally saying, I will beat my flesh into submission. Still in that rocky mindset, sometimes he looked like he was being beat to a pulp. We should be willing to beat our fleshly desires into submission. And I'm not talking about self-harm. I'm not talking about asceticism. No, I'm talking about practicing the disciplines, even when we don't want to even when it's hard to see that eternity in mind for the sake of being useful for Christ, not being kicked out of the race. As we think about winning people to Christ, it's a challenging thing, it's a convicting thing, but it's an exciting thing that God gives us an opportunity to be a part of. So wherever you're at, maybe you have a bunch of people who come to mind right away of, yep, I know I led all these people to Christ. God has used me and I am thankful for that. Or whether you have never ever share the gospel, you've never led someone to the Lord, start today in a mindset of growth in courageous evangelism. Start today with understanding that God wants to use you for his glory in seeking and saving the lost. Work on growing your gospel-centered mindset. Work on engaging the world around you. And again, no matter where you're at, work on starting your disciplines with eternity in mind. As God wants us to build our spiritual muscles so that he can use us, so that we can win the race, so that we can obtain the prize. Let's be encouraged and let's be challenged to go out and do that this week. Let's pray. God, we love you. Lord, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for the truths. Even at times when they are challenging and hard to hear, also at times when they are encouraging and spur us into action, God, we are blessed by the gift of your words to us. We also thank you for the example of Paul as we read in 1 Corinthians, the way that you used him, God, to to share the gospel, to engage the world around him, to fight against his own fleshly desires in order that he may glorify you, in order that he may see others glorify you by giving their lives to Christ. God, again, no matter where we're at today, I pray that you would, God, challenge us to become more focused on the mission the critical mission of saving lives by sharing the gospel. But I pray that you would give us the energy, give us the endurance, give us the words to say, even this week, God, that we may have some opportunities to see your church grow through the salvation of lost souls. God, you are the one who gives us the strength. You are the one who deserves to be lifted high. You are the one who laid down your son for us. God, would that be our motivation to imitate you and God, to seek to save lost souls. God, we love you. We thank you that you came to save us. We worship now with that in mind. We love you, Lord. We pray all these things in Jesus' name.